legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by the Art of Manliness store. Yes, we have a store where we sell swag, merch, whatever it is you want to call it. We've got t-shirts, we've got posters featuring Roger Kipling's poem, If, Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech. We also have some pretty cool coffee mugs. They're hefty, big fan of it. Also got our one-of-a-kind Ben Franklin Virtue Journal. Got some other stuff there. Go check it out, store.artofmanliness.com. And if it's your first purchase, use code AOM Podcast at checkout. You get 10% off your first purchase. All your purchases from the Art of Manliness stores help support the podcast as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. So go check it out, store.artofmanliness.com. Code AOM Podcast for 10% off. Thank you. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your own passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Rocky Marciano was a slow, stocky kid with short arms and stubby legs. He wasn't the kind of kid you'd pick to one day be an elite boxer, yet he went on to become the only undefeated heavyweight champion in boxing history. In the process, Marciano became a cultural icon in 1950s America, rubbing shoulders with presidents, movie stars, and gangsters. How did someone who got a late start in the sport become one of boxing's greatest athletes? And what happens to a man when fame and fortune are suddenly thrust upon him? My guest today explores those questions in his new book, Unbeaten Rocky Marciano's fight for perfection in a crooked world. His name is Mike Stanton. And today on the show, Mike shares how grit, discipline, and fate led Rocky to become the only undefeated heavyweight fighter in boxing history. Mike then shares the challenges Rocky faced with his newfound fame, from balancing work and family, to managing a huge influx of money, to navigating the crooked world of organized crime that controlled the world of boxing. We end up talking about how Rocky is both an inspiring and tragic figure. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash marciano. Mike joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Mike Stanton, welcome to the show. Hi, Brett. How are you? Doing well. Well, you got a new bio out about one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. Some would say, you know, this is, again, this is up for debate. We'll talk about whether he is the greatest, but one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time, that's Rocky Marciano. Are, I'm curious, were there a lot of bios about Rocky or were you surprised at like how little there was written about him when you first 
started thinking about this project? There were a couple of good bios, but not a lot and not anything real recently. And I thought that Rocky was just such a great story and such an embodiment of so much of America, American history, as well as boxing in the middle of the 20th century, that I thought his story deserved to be told to a new generation of, of people who might know who he is, know that he was history's only unbeaten champion, but don't really know anything uh, beyond the broad outlines. And I'm curious, what was your draw to it personally? Because, I mean, you were, uh, I, said, I think you said in the book, you, he was, you were 11 years old when he died. So that mm-hmm. means yeah. you're about two years old when he retired. So you probably never saw him fight live. You missed the period no. when he was like the biggest thing in America. So, I mean, without that firsthand experience, what, what drew you to, to writing about him? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I always believe that all history is biography. And I love history and I love telling stories about America and who we are and how we got here. And, and Rocky seemed like a great embodiment of that. And I, I discovered his story as a longtime newspaper reporter in Providence, Rhode Island. And I wrote a book, Prince of Providence, about the longtime mayor, Buddy Cianci, who was a very colorful rogue and the mayor in you know, more recent times. But when he was a boy, I discovered in my research, his father would take him to fight night at the Rhode Island Auditorium in Providence. And this would have been in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And that was when Rocky Marciano was the headliner there. Uh, he came from Brockton, Massachusetts, about 35 miles away. And I was just fascinated by that culture. First of all, not just in Providence, but across America and around the world, boxing was one of the biggest sports back in that era. If you were the heavyweight champion of the world, everybody knew who you were, and you walked with presidents and kings and movie stars. And I was also interested in that whole colorful guys and dolls era of, you know, the characters who lurked around boxing, the mafia, you know, the, the, the spectacle of a big fight in a smoke-filled arena at Madison Square Garden and then Toots Shores and the nightclub scene afterwards. How big of a deal was, was he during the 1950s? I mean, how much of a cultural impact did he have on America? He was huge. I mean, if you want to understand America in the 1940s and 50s, you know, you need to know about Rocky Marciano. He was the heavyweight champion of the world from 1952 to 56. And that was the, that post-war era in America. After World War II, there was this euphoria. And he kind of embodied the American spirit of anything was possible. Anyone could be a contender. And he was also the poster boy for American might makes right in, this, in the Cold War era that we were entered into. In fact, the Speaker of the U.S. Congress actually you know, held him up as a symbol of American superiority. And his manager said that he punched like the atomic bomb. So he was really a reflection of that era. And he was also, this is kind of the darker side of that era, he was viewed by a lot of Americans as the great white hope. And that wasn't a mantle he put on himself. He had a good relationship with black fighters. He respected what they went through. And I get into a lot of that in the book, you know, the racial climate. But that was how he was viewed. And, you know, when he won the championship, he went to the White House and uh, President Eisenhower measured his fist and Joe DiMaggio was standing there and, you know, everybody wanted to meet Rocky. Yeah, he was the first white heavyweight champion in the world for like, I think like 15 or 20 years, right? Yeah, it, it, since uh, Joe Lewis knocked out James Braddock in 1937 to break the color line that had been, you know, in force in boxing since uh, the early 1900s when uh, the controversial Jack Johnson was the champion. 
And Joe Lewis, of course, you know, he transcended race. He was, you know, the American champion who beat Max Schmeling, Hitler's champion in the years leading up to World War II. And then he served in, in the army during the war and was an American hero. And he was a hero of Rockies. Rocky was listening as a boy when uh, on the radio at the Brockton Fairgrounds when Lewis knocked out Schmeling. And, you know, years later when Rocky has to face Lewis and knocks out his boyhood idol to put him on the path to the title, Rocky cried. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that in a bit. So, I mean, let's get to his, his like, what led to him becoming the heavyweight champion of the world. Because I, I, mean, I, I knew nothing about, like, hardly anything about Rocky mm-hmm. before this book. So what was he like as a boy? Did I mean, was he, I, I've read a lot of other biographies of fighters and you would see, you could see signs that they would be a boxer, right? Yeah. Early in life, because they get in lots of scraps or they just, they found the local gym. They just hung out there all the time. Right. Was Rocky like that? Was like, you could see from a young age, like he was destined to become the heavyweight champion of the world? Yes and no. I mean, the first thing he loved hitting was a baseball. I mean, he loved to play baseball but he loved sports of all kinds. He was, you know, he he was a classic, you know, immigrant son. Father, you know, came over from Italy. Mother came over from Italy. They met in Brockton. The father worked in a shoe factory. Brockton was the shoe factory capital. Sent out 12 million pairs a year around the world. And Rocky, they lived on a big playground. And Rocky was outdoors in all, all weather playing all sports. The other thing, boxing was a big part of our culture back then. And so boys fought. Kids would set up rings in the neighborhood in someone's backyard, and they would have a fight. They would put on the oversized gloves and go at it. And kids fought over bragging rights, you know, different ethnic groups in Brockton. The Irish kids and the Italian kids would would fight it out, or friends would settle their differences. But then they would blow over like a summer storm. And so Rocky was a big, strong, husky kid, great appetite, as I said, loved sports, Kind of quiet, but he hung out with some friends who were very mischievous and would get into fights, and then they would call on Rocky, the strong, silent one, to kind of, you know, restore order. And so Rocky had a neighborhood reputation as the strongest kid in the neighborhood, and he did a little, you know, fooling around boxing, but all kids did back then. Yeah. What was his relationship like with his parents? It was very close. He was the eldest son in a family of six, three boys and three girls. You know, the, the oldest son in a, you know, firstborn first-generation immigrant family has, has a special place. You know, he would be the one that would go to the school with his parents who didn't speak English very well, you know, if, if one of the other siblings was having trouble with a teacher. And uh, he was the one, when he got older, who would get a paper route and other odd jobs to try to make money to help the family make ends meet. I mean, they grew up, they, they were in the Italian second ward of Brockton. It was a working-class neighborhood. And, you know, they struggled during the Depression, but, you know, his father kept working and you know, they made ends meet. And uh, in some ways, it was a very idyllic childhood. And he was very close with his parents. And, you know, through all the twists and turns that his life later took, he always remained close to them. And he always had that pride in being their breadwinner. And you mentioned uh, these friends that he hung out with. I mean, these friends, these friendships he made, they didn't, weren't just childhood friendships. Like these lasted throughout his entire life. And some of these guys even had a big role in his career as a boxer. Yeah. And what's interesting about Rocky is that, you know, boxing is a pretty cutthroat business. It was a very cutthroat sport. And Rocky learned to trust the people who had been with him the longest. The, The people that came along later, for the most part, he knew he couldn't trust them. So he always, Brockton was always his touchstone. You know, his oldest friends were always the ones he trusted the most and who were by his side. You know, one friend in particular who was a few years older, Ali Colombo, 
you know, lived next door, always organized the baseball games. And Allie was the one who really pushed him when he started out in boxing and really didn't know his way and didn't know, you know, how to go about it. And Allie was there right through his entire career. And other friends would come to his training camps at Grossinger's and, you know, keep his spirits up. And uh, there was that bond he had. And, and the other thing, this was a gambling culture. Everybody bet on things. And when Rocky went into the ring, he said, I knew I could never fall down. I, you know, for, for the people of Brockton, I would always get up because I knew they were counting on me. They were betting their, their money on me and I wasn't going to let them down. Yeah. So not not much interest in boxing. I mean, he did have an interest in boxing, but he was more of a baseball player as a, as a young boy. And I what I what I love reading biographies about you know about famous people or people who did great things, you know, from decades gone by. I think a lot of young people today think this idea or this feeling of listlessness or not knowing what they're supposed to do with their lives is like something new and you know, their grandfathers like had it all figured out when they were 22 as well. But when you read these biographies of these guys, like they were just as clueless as a 20 something is today. And it seems like Rocky was the same way. Like he would, he was in his early twenties and he didn't really have his bearings. He didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. No. Well, you know what? I mean, back then his ticket, there was a one way ticket to the shoe factory and for a you know blue collar Italian kid without a lot of a lot of other opportunities, without an education, he dropped out of high school. He you know was the first to admit that he wasn't a big lover of books. Sports was his way out, and initially he thought that would be baseball. He could hit the ball a mile, and he was you know short, stout, prototypical catcher. Um, but maybe you know life has its twists, and maybe it all happened for a reason. But he went down to spring training with the Chicago Cubs in 1947. And he had a tryout with them, and he hit the ball pretty well. But the supreme irony is that he couldn't make a strong throw to second base from catcher. And here he is, the greatest uh, you know, slugger in heavyweight history. He can't make a strong throw to second, and that was his undoing in baseball. What do you think held him back like, from, from having that strong throw, despite being able to throw a really strong punch? Well, he said that he had injured his arm in the Army playing sports. It was never quite clear. But, you know, let's face it, the, the competition is stiff in ma- to make the Major League Baseball rosters, especially back then when there were far fewer teams. Yeah. And, you know, and there were a lot of good ball players from Brockton. I mean, he went down with some friends who were good ball players, and some stuck in the, the minors for a few years. And one uh, made it to the AAA Dodgers team, but then got hurt and stopped playing. And actually, they were signed by the scout that signed the. Uh, the Chicago Cubs player who was the inspiration for the movie The Natural. So, you know, a lot of good ball players then, and that, that was Rocky's love. And later, when he became a successful boxer, he found himself being, you know, friends with Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and, you know, other great baseball stars like Yogi Berra. Yeah. So, but it's still, at this point, like, he wasn't boxing, like, regularly. Well, not, no. And what's interesting, though, when you, like I, I was saying, everything happens for a reason. When he was... When he became a boxer, his trainer incorporated some of his baseball mannerisms, particularly his catcher's crouch, into his fighting style because Rocky was short and he needed, you know, to get up close to his opponents to, um, you know, be able to hit them. And that opened him up to being hit. So he had to be, um, you know, he had to be down low so they couldn't get at him. Yeah. Well, so another thing that added to... Marciano's, you know, all-American appeal when he became a celebrity was that he served in the army during World War II. But the thing is, he never really talked about it much. Uh, why is that? 
Well, one of the things I discovered in my research for this book, I had heard some rumblings that he had some problems in the Army. And when I got his Army file from the National Archives in St. Louis, I discovered that he had been court-martialed along with another GI for robbing and assaulting two British civilians. Uh, Rocky was over in uh, England on the eve of the D-Day invasion. He was in an Army combat engineers unit that was going to deploy to Normandy as part of the invasion. And on the night he got into trouble, he was supposed to be confined to base because the you know D-Day was coming. And he and his uh, friends snuck off base. They went to a pub. They met a couple of British civilians who worked for an airplane company. They were back at the uh, civilian's apartment, and uh, they they got into a fight, and they robbed them and, and punched them and, and were later court-martialed. So they never deployed to Normandy. And Rocky wound up being sentenced and wound up serving two years in a military uh, prison back in Indiana. And this was in the spring of 1944, uh, around the time of D-Day. And then he was freed in uh, the spring of 1946, the year after the war ended. And unlike most people who were, you know, drafted into the army for World War II, whose service ended with the war, uh, Rocky stayed in uh, through the end of 1946 so he could come out with an honorable discharge. And that was really a pivotal point when his boxing career really begins in a more formal way because he goes out and serves it in Fort Lewis, uh, Washington State, and he boxes on the army boxing team, which is a very good team. And he starts to fight regularly for the first time. And he gets himself into shape. He had fought an amateur fight back in Brockton um, before he went out to Fort Lewis, but he was totally out of shape. He went over to his uncle's house and he had a big dish of macaroni before the fight. And he ran out of gas in the second round and uh, he needed his opponent in the the groin and was disqualified. So after that, he said, I'm not going to embarrass myself anymore. He got himself into shape in the Army and he boxed pretty well out there. And he went to the National AAU Championships in Portland, Oregon. Uh, where he reached the finals, and another fateful turn happened in his career at this point. In the semis, because he was so clumsy, he could hit hard, but he was very clumsy, he hit his opponent on the head, and he he fractured his knuckle very severely, and it could have been a career-ending injury. And fatefully, there was a Japanese-American army surgeon at Fort Lewis, Thomas Takeda, who performed an experimental operation and saved Rocky's knuckle, and it allowed him to be able to fight. And interestingly, Dr. Takeda's family had been interned in the Japanese-American prison camps during World War II, but Dr. Takeda was in medical school and was spared that, and he was in the right place at the right time as far as Rocky's career was concerned. So when he started boxing on the Army team, like did he, did he have any formal boxing training, or did he just kind of get in there and sort of like going back, falling back onto those schoolyard scraps he had, like that's how he boxed? Yeah, he boxed like, uh, yeah, that's how he boxed. I mean, they had coaches on the Army team, and they started to give him advice, and, you know, he was he was training so he could, he could, you know, have the energy to go, you know, the distance and the fights he had, unless he knocked his opponent out, as he often did. Uh, but he was still very rude. He was very rude and crude, and, and well into his career as a professional, he was as well. But this was the, the beginning of the formal education of Rocky Marciano in the ring. And at what point in this, you know, and how old was he at this point? Let's kind of get some context there. He would have been about 22, 23 years old at this point. 22 years old. So, I mean, it's kind of a late start yes. to get into the boxing game. Yeah, his trainer, Charlie Goldman, once said, you know, he started way too late. 
I got a guy who's got two left feet. He's stoop-shouldered. He's balding. He don't look so good with the moves in the ring, but his opponents don't look so good on the canvas either. <laughs> right. And so what point did Rocky think, like, I could turn this box, like, boxing is going to be my ticket out of the shoe factory? Like, when did he think that that was going to be reality? Well, after he got out of the army at the beginning of 1947, he carried on his boxing experience. He fought some amateur fights and gold gloves fights in uh, New England. But then he had his baseball tryout with the Cubs that spring. And he really wasn't so enamored with boxing. It was just a way to, you know, make a paycheck while he waited for the baseball career to take off. And once that didn't take off, he came back in the spring of 47. And uh, that was when he started boxing in earnest. And uh, his friend Ali Colombo was the first one to really see that, you know, he thought Rocky could go all the way, which seems pretty ridiculous to think about back then. But that was the dream that Ali had. And, and Rocky didn't really have any alternatives. And the interesting thing, you asked about his relationship with his parents, you know, the f- first son of an Italian mother. She hated the idea of him fighting, didn't want to see him fight, would be upset about it. So he used to sneak out of the house to train. And, you know, in the spring of 47, he went, he snuck out to Holyoke, Massachusetts, and he fought his first professional fight. And he fought it under an assumed name, Rocky Mack an Irish name on St. Patrick's Day in an Irish working-class city. And he won his first fight, and then, you know, he kind of crept back to Brockton without letting his mother know. And later, when she did find out he was fighting, she always made him promise that he would stop if he ever got hurt, and she'd always make him lift up his shirt and inspect his body for marks to see if he could keep fighting. Well, didn't he, like, that affected his fighting style because he would would stand (laughs) in a certain way so he wouldn't get hit in the face. When he later got a... A, a seasoned manage, uh, manager and trainer, and they looked at him and said, why are you, you know, holding your hands up like that and letting people hit you in the stomach? He goes, well, I just figured I'd let them punch themselves out. I, I don't want to get hit in the face because that would leave a mark and then my mom would see it. And uh, his mother was this indomitable woman, Pasqualina, or no, Lena, and that's where she got, that's where he got his strength from. She was a big, you know, powerful woman, very gregarious, vivacious, the heart and soul of that family. And, you know, his friends would say that he, she was the one person that people feared in his house. So uh, Rocky starts boxing semi-professionally. He's, I mean, he's trying to maintain an amateur status so he can you know, be eligible for the AAU Golden Gloves. Right. Uh, but, you know, like it, th- those rules got flouted all the time. People would fight like he did, fight under his, uh, different names. Yeah. When did he get connected with like a, a legit manager and trainer that would lead him and train him to actually hit, you know, turn pro? Well, that would be in, in the summer of 1948. He'd been boxing some amateur fights. He'd won the New England uh, Golden Gloves in Lowell, Massachusetts. And uh, he went down to New York where he lost uh, to Coley Wallace, who was kind of a young, upcoming black fighter who was hailed as the next Joe Lewis. The only way he was the next Joe Lewis was he played him in a movie. But Wallace won a controversial decision in New York that a lot of people felt should have gone to Rocky. And that probably cost Rocky a shot at the Olympics, uh, the Olympic team. But at that point, uh, the, the local manager in Brockton that Rocky had for amateur fights, you know, they weren't really getting along. And Rocky's had some family advisors who'd been in the fight game. And they said, you've got to go to New York. You've got to get a connect manager. New York is the center of the boxing universe. And boxing is such a treacherous sport. You've got, you got to have a guy with connections who's going to look out for you, get you the proper training, and get you, you know, the, the fights to put you on the, the path to the top. So he went to New York. 
and he got a meeting with the premier manager at the time, a guy named Al Weil, who was a great character. And Weil was the matchmaker for the International Boxing Club, which controlled boxing, or he would be. And he was very influential. He'd had three champions in other weight classes. And, you know, so he got hooked up with Al Weil. And Al Weil brought along his, his trainer, Charlie Goldman, who was a, you know, walking encyclopedia of boxing knowledge earned in 400, you know, bantamweight fights of his own in the early 1900s. And so with those two guys in his corner, Rocky started a more formal education in the ring that would later put him on the path to the title. But like initially, these guys didn't think much of Rocky. No, they didn't. And, you know, he was a guy who was very clumsy. He was very awkward. He was slow. He was short. He was old for a fighter starting out. And they actually brought him, brought him down to the gym uh, down in Lower Manhattan, a CYO gym, and just had him spar a few rounds with a guy. And they're looking at each other, Goldman and Weil and some of the other guys in the gym, and they're shaking their heads. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Rocky floors the guy with this thunderous, you know, looping right. And then they started to take notice. And, you know, later Charlie Goldman would nickname that punch the Suzy Q. And it was that punch that convinced them and also Rocky's dedication. They could tell that he really wanted it. He wasn't going to run around and fool around with girls and party. And, you know, he was going to train and he was a monk about it. And so they took a chance on him. And, you know, it didn't cost them anything. You know, they just told him to train and they weren't putting any money into him at the beginning. And because Rocky didn't really have a lot of money, he was digging ditches back in Brockton. They wanted him to move to New York and train, but they didn't want to pay his expenses. And he said, well, I can't afford that. So Weil, who's connected all over the place, sent him to Providence, Rhode Island, which was the fight capital of New England back then, as well as the mob capital. And that's where Rocky started to fight because he could you know, live at home in Brockton and he could go over to Providence for fights. And then he would hitch a ride on overnight produce trucks down from Brockton to New York to train with uh, Goldman. And he lived at the YMCA for a dollar a night. Right. So yeah, this is like, this is the tip, the prototypical boxing story. Like he was living it fully. Yeah. I mean, I love the images I found of him and his friend Allie, who was by his side for all of this. And they would roll off the produce truck at like four in the morning in lower Manhattan and the sun would be coming up and they didn't have much money in their pockets. And they would just walk the streets and at night for entertainment, they would walk up and down Broadway, watching the people in their fine clothes and you know, dream of that life. And one time he saw the, you know, the great fighter, Willie Pep, who was a champion. And he saw him walking up Broadway with a beautiful woman on his arm and they were both well-dressed and he bought her a flower and pinned it to her lapel and they went into a fancy theater. And Rocky dreamed of having that life. So he's in Providence, he's doing some fights, doing the work. At what point, what was the fight that brought Rocky to the, to the national stage? Like, yeah, he, he was a contender. Yeah, well, he built his record up in Providence, and he became a, a real crowd favorite there. First of all, Providence is a big Italian-American town, and so they loved him. And everybody loved his knockout punch. There, there came a tradition in Providence that whenever um, you know, Rocky would be ready to knock out one of his opponents, you know, he would hit him with his punch, his Susie Q, and the guy would kind of stand there and topple for a minute. And then he would crash to the canvas, and the crowd would yell, Timber! And so Rocky started to develop a reputation. And after a few fights, the local promoter was initially, you know, angry with Al Weil because Al Weil would always, you know, betray these other managers and cut 
deals that would screw them. And so they kept trying to put guys in the ring that would beat Rocky and shut Weil up. But Rocky kept knocking him out. And finally, Weil said, you know, the local man promoter said, Al, you better lock this guy up. He's, you know, starting to get a following. So Weil signed him to a contract. And that's when he started to come down to New York and train. So he kept winning all these fights. And then he finally gets to the point where he has his first big feature fight in Madison Square Garden um, a few nights before New Year's Eve in 1949. And he fights a guy named Carmine Vingo, who is also an unbeaten, up-and-coming, but younger Italian fighter from the Bronx, who has a big following there. His name is Bingo Vingo. And they have one of these great unknown fights that really puts Rocky on the map. And in some ways, it puts him on the map for the wrong reasons, because they start wailing away on each other. And it's like two heavyweights fighting at the speed and intensity of lightweights, and they're landing, landing thunderous punches on each other. And the New York Times wrote or writer wrote that it, it seemed like more than human you know, endurance could stand. And finally, in the sixth, in like the third or fourth round, Vingo hit Rocky, a tremendous shot to the chest. And Rocky later said he blacked out, but he stayed on his feet and just went into a clinch until he could re- regain his senses. And in the sixth round, with Vingo tiring, Rocky you know, hit him with a thunderous right, put him on the canvas. Then his head kind of thumped up and hit the canvas again. And while Rocky was celebrating, Vingo slipped into a coma. And later, you know, the, the ring doctor tried to revive him, was unsuccessful. They called an ambulance. They couldn't get an ambulance to come. So they piled uh, blankets and coats on him and, and carried him through the streets of Manhattan to a nearby hospital. And then Rocky heard about it and went over there and, and stood vigil as Vingo's family and fiance came. And he basically fought to see if he would live or die. And a few a few days later, he pulls out of the coma, and he eventually recovers, but not, never will fight again. He's blinded in one eye. He has a permanent limp. And for the rest of his life, Vingo never remembered that fight. The last thing he remembered was the six steps leading up from the, the floor of Madison Square Garden to the ring. And then the next thing he remembers was lying in the hospital bed and seeing his mother. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you find it fulfilling to explore new interests and develop new skills... You're going to love The Great Courses Plus. When you sign up for The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to learn from leading professors and experts about anything that interests you. History, science, philosophy. You can even learn a new language, master photography, brush up on your business skills. There are thousands of lectures that you can watch from any device or you can listen to on The Great Courses Plus app. One course I recommend you check out if you've enjoyed our podcast on martial arts. There's one called Martial Arts for Your Mind and Body. It's a course that looks at nine different styles of martial arts, including karate, taekwondo, judo, and more. And they delve into the nuances of each style and how they can help develop the mind and character as well as the body. So go check that out. Again, that's Martial Arts for Your Mind and Body. If you'd like to check out The Great Courses for free, got a free trial offer for you. We have unlimited access to their entire library of courses. So here's how you did get it. You go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. You'll get a free trial with unlimited access to their entire library of courses. Check out the martial arts one or check out one that interests you. Again, one more time to get free trial, unlimited access, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Also by Squarespace. Take from me, someone who's built a few websites. If you don't know how to code or design or whatever, it's going to be a big pain in the rear. When I first started The Art of Manliness, I didn't have the money to hire a designer, so I tried to do it myself. I broke the site over and over again because I 
had some sort of stray backslash where there should have been a question mark or something like that. The other option is you hire a designer, but if you don't have any capital, well, that's not an option for you. A great solution is Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project and have a website to go with it. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. They got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can make a great looking website yourself and it's going to look great on laptop, desktop, smartphone, tablet. They also have e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything online and they got analytics to help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And if you ever have a problem, they got award-winning 24-7 customer support. If you'd like to try this out, try a free trial. Go to squarespace.com slash manliness. Explore the features, how everything works. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash manliness. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. How did that affect the rest of Rocky's career? Because I'm sure like knowing that you almost killed a guy would... Yeah. I don't know, make you a bit timid next time you go into the ring? Absolutely. And and it did. But the longer term effect would have been had Vingo died. You know, Rocky said that he's not sure he could have continued had Vingo died. I, I'm not sure that's true. And, um, and Rocky's friends think he would have continued. But still, you wonder how the effect it's going to have on you. And that's the specter of boxing, isn't it? That's the death in the ring that lurks. And it's interesting, you know, in, in researching this period, I found that as popular as boxing was, it was kind of like the NFL of its day. And people loved it, but they also had this love-hate relationship with it. And they realized that they were like, you know, lusting for blood and lusting for the thrill of seeing another man potentially killed or maimed. And there was a lot of hand-wringing publicly about whether boxing had a role in society. And interestingly, you know, Rocky later came around to some of those views later in life. But at the time, there was a lot of talk about what kind of reforms can we put into boxing to make it safer? Can you make it safer? But it, it did bother Rocky. He was very on edge about what had happened. And other great fighters, you know, his trainer had seen other great fighters lose their killer instinct. And his next fight was his next big fight in the garden against Roland Lestarza, who was another unbeaten, young, darling heavyweight of the New York press. He was very stylistic. He had gone to local college. But he was a guy that lacked the killer instinct. And they, they, kind of pat, they kind of compared it to a Dempsey versus Tunney fight. You know, Dempsey being Rocky, the hard hitter, and Tunney being the more thoughtful, strategic, defensive fighter. And Rocky won that fight in a very narrow, controversial 10-round decision in Madison Square Garden. And that really put him on the path to being a contender. And from then on, his fights were headliner fights. He wasn't on the you know, undercard after that fight in 1950 against Lestarza. Right. And then he eventually uh, fights Joe Lewis. This wasn't for the title, though, correct? There was another guy who held the title, Joe Lewis. Jersey Joe Walcott and, yeah. and Ezra Charles were champions um, in reverse order after Lewis uh, stepped down. And then what happened was, you know, this, the tragedy of Joe Lewis's life was he had a lot of debts and he needed to come back into the ring to try to make money, even though he was past his prime. But he was still the Brown Bomber. He was still Joe Lewis. And so when Rocky was rising to contender status, Lewis was suddenly the, the match that was made for them to face each other. And when Rocky won that fight in October of 1951, he was kind of declared the champion in waiting. And again, some of this goes to the racial overtones of the era that after Joe Lewis, the black champions were kind of unsung and really didn't never really 
connected with the public and Rocky was seen as the fresh face, the white face, the great white hope, if you will. And once he beat Joe Lewis, his idol, he was the, he was the top contender to the crown. I, I wonder if uh, Rocky, you know, Rocky seeing Joe Lewis had an influence on how Rocky decided to end his career. Because that's like, you know, Joe Lewis's story is super sad, but like that was the story of a lot of heavyweight, a lot of boxers in that time. They would go and they'd make a lot of money and they retire and they would need more money. So they'd come out of retirement and mm-hmm. they're past their prime and they're still trying to, you know, win one more fight. And it, it's sad, right? And it's just, it's yeah. really tragic. And I, I wonder if Rocky saw that and was like, I'm not going to do that. So that's why he just decided I'm, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to walk away completely from boxing. Yeah, he was 49 and 0. He was, uh, you know, in his early 30s. He still had some fights left in him. 50 and 0 would have been a nice round number. But he, you know, there were two things that Rocky was afraid of. He was afraid of not having money. You know, he grew up in the Depression. He also saw a lot of fighters who got fleeced and left with nothing. You know, they lived the good life while it was there and then it was gone. He also saw a lot of, you know, broken down fighters who you know, or sitting alone mumbling in bars and, you know, their wits aren't all about them. And he feared that. Those are the two things he feared. And he was really kind of a, he was a real assassin in the ring, but he was a pretty gentle man out of it. And he didn't really hold grudges against fighters. The one time he really got mad at a fighter, though, was when he was champion and he fought Roland Lestarza in a rematch. And he was angry that before the fight, Lestarza was quoted making some comments about the way Rocky fights. He takes so many punches, he's going to become punch drunk. And that really struck a nerve with Rocky because he feared that and he didn't want that. And uh, he knew when to walk away. And there were some other reasons we can get into about his manager stealing from him. But again, goes back to his, you know, fear of not having enough money. But that was... uh, that, he had the presence of mind. And later in life, he helped Joe Lewis. He helped Joe Lewis get jobs. And when he met Muhammad Ali late in his life, uh, Ali's wife pulled Rocky aside one day and said, do you think I can get you know, Muhammad to retire? And Rocky looked at her and said, no, darling, he's got the, he's got the lust in his eye and he's just going to have to, he's too big an ego. He's not going to stop. Yeah. So you mentioned once Rocky decided he was going to do boxing. He became pretty much a monk. Like he quit smoking, he quit drinking. And then his you go into his training camps and he become even more monk light. So walk us through his training regimens to get ready for a fight and like the the extremes he'd go to to make sure he was in tip top shape for a fight. Rocky realized that his body was his temple and uh you know, he would train for months, he would do he would run relentlessly. Even and he would box like several hundred rounds to prepare for a 10 or 15 round fight. And the other thing about him is even when he wasn't formally in training, he would always be working out. You know, his brother talked about waking up in the middle of the night, you know, and there's Rocky, you know, on the floor doing push up, you know, push ups with a chair or, you know, some exercise, you know, squeezing a ball with his hand to strengthen, you know, the knuckles that he had broken. So he was always training. And he liked the heat. He said, oh, this reminds me of digging ditches in Brockton. You know, he liked enduring punishment. Sometimes he would go up to Grossinger's in the Catskill Mountains of New York in the winter. And he said that the, the cold wind would toughen his skin. So he was, he was a rough, tough guy. Yeah, yeah. And not only was it like the physical training was hard, like he would, he would sort of, I don't know, spiritually, psychologically prepare himself for these fights. Like he would have no distractions whatsoever. He wouldn't see his family. He would cut off mail. 
It was just thinking about fighting all the time. Yeah, he wouldn't read stories about his opponents, and he would just have paint mental pictures. In some ways, he was a good model for athletes today about how to train. He was ahead of his time in terms of you know avoiding fried foods and eating green vegetables and you know things like that. He he also somewhere early on somebody told him don't lift weights and get yourself all bulk, bulked up. He was more about flexibility, and even though he was not you know the most graceful of fighters. You know, he kind of incorporated that into his training. One of the things he did when he was young, he would go to the Brockton YMCA and get in the swimming pool, and he would throw punches underwater, and he would go like Mach three rounds. And you know, people would come into the pool area and see the water sloshing up over the sides from the force of his underwater punching. Right. So he had he had a lot of discipline. He knew how to just discipline himself. Incredible discipline. There's a great story I found. There was a Hollywood bombshell actress named Jane Mansfield, kind of like a Marilyn Monroe type. And she goes, she's at the, at the Grossingers. His training camp was also, you know, a big entertainment mecca. A lot of Hollywood stars would go and entertain the uh, people at the resort down the hill from where Rocky trained. So there are always stars around. And Jane Mansfield was at Grossingers once when Rocky was training. And some friends thought it would be kind of a funny joke to send her into his cabin to see if she could seduce him. And she went in, and you know, not many men would say no to Jane Mansfield uh, back then. But he said no, and she left his cabin in a huff, you know, frustrated that he had rejected her, which she wasn't accustomed to. Right. But that was Rocky. He said there would be plenty of time for living the good life later. But again, it was I think that fear that drove him, and that pride. You know, even even if he got knocked down while he was sparring he would want to spar more or say, I just slipped and fell. There was that fierce pride. Well, yeah, you mentioned earlier that when he fought, like he, he felt like the weight of the world on his shoulders. He wasn't just fighting for him and his family. We can talk about his family life in here, here in a bit, but he was also fighting for the people in Brockton because he knew people were probably betting enormous amounts of money on him and he couldn't let them down. Yeah, they were. I mean, it was part of the culture then. People gambled. And, you know, he was a kid. He would go to these uh, illegal dice games in the woods behind the, the ball field where there was a, a one-legged uh, gambler from Providence named Peg Leg Pete would run him. And so gambling was ingrained in the culture. And it was interesting. I found that when Rocky started his rise in boxing, you know, started getting the bigger fights, the people in Brockton, you know, little old Italian ladies and men would you know, take the money that the dollar bill stashed in their coffee tins and they would bet it on Rocky. And then he'd win and they'd take the winnings and they'd roll it over and bet on the next fight and the next fight. And then you'd hear stories about people in Brockton would be buying, you know, refrigerators and stoves and cars and even new houses. And there was one taxi driver after Rocky became champion. He told a visitor that, you know, before every fight, he takes this elderly Italian couple to the local loan company so they can borrow money. And he said, heaven help Brockton if uh, Rocky ever loses. But he never did. And he said, you know, I knew that these people were counting on me. And for them, I would always get up. Yeah. Rocky is Italian-American. Family, obviously very important. He gets married. It took him a while because his manager didn't want him to get married because it would distract from boxing. But he finally does get married to his wife, Barbara, right? Is that her name? Yeah. He gets married to Barbara Cousins. Yeah, but I mean, so he was gone all the time. So how did his boxing career, how did he balance boxing or family, or did he? Well, that was a real tension. Um, not so much in his marriage at the time. It was more of tension within himself because, you know, his wife, Barbara, she was a good natural athlete, and 
she accepted what he was doing and she was willing to make the sacrifice. But it was hard on Rocky. You know, he want, he'd talk about, you know, I've just gotten married or I'm engaged and I can't see my my wife or my fiance. And then when they had a daughter, after he became champion, he would bemoan, you know, I miss my family. I haven't seen my daughter in eight months. I go home and she doesn't even know me. She's scared of me and runs away. And, uh, you know, this is a guy that grew up, grew up with strong family bonds. So that was hard. But he also loved boxing. He loved training. And, you know, he was willing to make the sacrifice and he didn't regret doing it. So what I found interesting uh, about Rocky's career is even though he was winning every match he was in and knocking people out, the the journalist and the boxing critics weren't, I mean, they, they still, like, they weren't that impressed. Like, they, they were always criticizing him and saying he wasn't that, he wasn't actually that great of a boxer. I mean, what, what was their critique against Rocky despite him winning every single round that he, or every single match he was put in? Well, he was slow. He was awkward. He was clumsy. He wasn't a great stylist. You know, people were used to the stylists like Joe Lewis, who were very graceful and, you know, good counterpunchers and good strategists and um, were quick and could move in and out. And he was like a bulldozer. And, you know, he was like a working class guy. You know, he'd come in with his pickaxe and he'd just keep banging on the brick wall and seemingly futility until suddenly the wall crumbled. And, you know, finally, again, the the Cold War America started to embrace that, you know, heavy puncher. And they started to like that about him. But, you know, he was a guy who could never win on dial points. And, you know, even as he advanced in his career, you know, he, he and his trainer would admit that, you know, he's not the most graceful guy, but there's more than one way to win a fight. And Rocky had the punch, and he also had the ability to take a punch and take incredible punishment and keep going. You know, when he was knocked down, when he was bloody, when his nose was hanging in, you know, tatters and bleeding like a faucet, he just kept coming. Yeah, the dedication or the determination, the grit that he had, that seemed, that, that surprised opponents. They'd be like, I, I gave him a really good you know, wallop, but like he just, he didn't go down. He just kept coming at me. Yeah, one opponent said it was like hitting the side of a rhino. Archie Moore said it was like uh, wading into a moving uh, airplane propeller. And another opponent early on said that every time Rocky hit you, you saw a flash of light. Right. Um, so let's talk about his manager. Because his manager, as you said, he was a character. Someone, I think, described him as Hitler and Mussolini rolled into one or something like that. Had connections to the mob. What, what was Rocky's, uh, you know, obviously he's Italian-American. He's a boxer. So there, he must have rubbed shoulders. And since, you know, an early day, or since he was a kid, he was also going to these gambling, you know, he, he, so he probably saw it, encountered it. What did he think about it? Was it one of those things where he was both, there was a tension there, like he was both appalled and sort of drawn to it at the same time? Very much a tension. And that would manifest itself more after he retired from the ring and he needed a new outlet for, you know, the adrenaline rush of boxing. And he would hang around these dangerous mobsters who all adored him. And they adored him because he was one of them. He was a countryman, but also because he did them proud. And he resented that, um, you know, anti-Italian prejudice and stereotype that mobsters brought onto his race. And he resented, you know, the corruption in boxing and the mob control permeated it. And it didn't matter whether you were black, Italian, Latino, Irish. I mean, if you were a boxer and you were 
you know, in the mix, you had to deal with the mob in some way, shape or form because they were in the background behind all of it. And so, of course, you know, the, the flip side of the coin, Rocky gets one of the most politically connected managers in boxing, Al Weil. And that means that Al Weil is, is also answers to Frankie Carbo, who's a notorious mobster known as the Underworld Commissioner of Boxing, as well as a hitman for Murder, Inc., uh, implicated in five murders, including his former partner, Bugsy Siegel. And Al Weil, though, was a real character, and there was real tension between Rocky and, and Weil throughout his career. First of all, he hitches his star to this, you know, big-time manager, and he's happy about that because he's going to get him the shot at the title. Al Weil was an interesting character. You know, he and Charlie Goldman came of age, you know, both poor immigrants, Jewish immigrants from New York, from uh, Europe in the early 1900s. They come to New York. They battle their way up. And Weil, interestingly, he started dancing in uh, dance halls and winning $5 in these dance competitions, and that's how he survived. And one of his rivals was a young, up-and-coming future star actor named George Raft. This is in Manhattan. And later, he gravitates into the boxing game, and it turns out he's got a real gift for matching fighters. And so he gets into that, but he's still hustling odd jobs. Boxing is still illegal a lot of the, a lot of the years in the early 1900s. And so he's working at the Golden City Amusement Park in, on the waterfront in Brooklyn in Canarsie. And he, he's running the high striker, you know, getting guys to impress their girls by, you know, taking the mallet and hitting the bell and, you know, winning a prize. And nearby, he meets this guy, this old, you know, broken down boxer named Charlie Goldman, who's running the Wheel of Fortune. And they wind up striking up this uh, great partnership that produces three uh, world champions, you know, a lightweight Lou Ambers, a featherweight Joey Archibald and a welterweight in Marty Servo. But they've never, you know, the one crown that's eluded them is the heavyweight crown, the most glamorous of all. And so when they take Rocky on, Rocky's eager because now he's got the best management. But Weil is very domineering. You know, there's one profile that compares him to Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and Simon Legree rolled into one. And this is a favorable profile. But Weil was the master manipulator. He was a control freak and he would tell his fighters, you know, when to eat, when to sleep, where to go, who, you know, whether they could date, when they could marry. And he was very domineering. He was very crude and abrasive and, you know, didn't always treat Rocky well. And Rocky bristled at that, but he had enough, um, you know, uh, restraint that he knew he had to, you know, put up with that to get to the title. And so, you know, that was the, that was the uneasy marriage that lasted throughout his career and eventually broke up and was a big reason that Rocky retired when he did. Well, yeah, let's talk about his retirement. So he, you mentioned that he loved boxing, he loved training, but when he was getting to like, you know, win 48, 47, he was sort of talking to people. He's like, I just, it's, it just doesn't do it for me anymore. Like there's, I've climbed all the mountains. What, am I, what else am I supposed to do? So there was that, and I mean, what else about his relationship with Weil that made him want to retire as well? Well, as I said, Weil was connected to the mob, and the mob would skim the money from a lot of these fights because it became a very lucrative. You know, we always know. I mean, Damon Runyon, guys and dolls. I mean, that's Rocky's life, and that's the world of boxing. And so we know the mob has always been around the fight game and all these characters. But what people don't realize, I discovered in researching this book, was that after World War II, boxing becomes bigger time because of all the new TV money 
TV is suddenly in every American's home. And the two biggest early forms of entertainment were boxing and I Love Lucy. And so there's a lot of money now to be made. And so Weil is, is taking half of Rocky's money earnings, even for public appearances outside of the ring, which is a lucrative side business for champions. And on top of that, Rocky's starting to hear rumblings that Weil is, is selling tickets, you know, under the table, that he's not sharing any of the proceeds with Rocky, you know, to his big fights, that he's skimming money off the top of his purses before he divvies it up. And then he's fighting in San Francisco against Don Cakel in the spring of 1955, his second to last fight. And there's an, a boxing investigation of the corruption out there that later uncovers a $10,000 check that was cashed and went to while that was skimmed off the top of Rocky's purses. So this was all starting to build up in Rocky. And now he's the champion. He's got some independence and uh, he's just had it. And he's also burned out from, you know, when you train as hard and as long as he did, even though his career was relatively short, he, he was, he had had it and he was starting to have some, in, you know, back trouble and he did see what happened to Joe Lewis and he did see what happened to some of these other broken down fighters and he didn't want to follow in their path. And so he decided after he fought Archie Moore in Yankee Stadium in the fall of 1955 that that was it. He was done. And uh, he walked away. So he retires. I mean, this guy, uh, you know, for the past, was it 10 years? Just constantly moving, constantly training, always going after something. I mean, what does a guy like that do when there's nothing to go after, like no set goal to go after? Yeah, he kind of drifts. At first, he enjoys it. And he's the most famous man in the world. He can command all kinds of money from business deals, speaking fees. People want to throw money at him. They want to give him you know, land. They want to give him suits, restaurants, hotels, plane flights. And so he's, he's living the good life. And he's enjoying all the things he deprived himself of when he trained. He's gorging himself on rich food and beer and you know, he's gaining a lot of weight. And he's also starting to become, you know, pretty notorious womanizer. And he also starts hanging out with mob guys. You know, again, they, they love him and he's kind of drawn to the, uh, you know, the danger and the excitement and the action. And so this becomes his life. And I, I pictured, you know, and meanwhile, the country is changing. You know, he retires in 1956, you know, boxing. This is kind of the last golden age of boxing. And it starts to decline in popularity. People wish he would come back. You know, Muhammad Ali comes along to kind of breathe new life into it, you know, for his career. And the 1960s comes along and the country is changing. And he, you know, in the late 50s, he goes down to Cuba and there's some talk about him getting involved in a mob run casino down there. And then shortly after he's supposed to, he leaves, he's supposed to come back. The, uh, you know, some of Fidel Castro's guerrillas shoot up the casino and then Fidel Castro overthrows the government down there and the casinos all have to shut down. So that deal goes away. You know, he meets with a notorious mobster, Johnny Rosselli, about taking a stake in a Las Vegas casino and that deal falls through. But he has a lot of other things going on and he actually does get involved with a Cleveland loan shark named Peter DeGravio and, you know, winds up putting some money into DeGravio's business, and then the IRS is sniffing around. One of the real eccentric things about Rocky in retirement, this goes back to his depression childhood, I suppose, is he loves cash, doesn't trust banks, 
he hides cash in all sorts of bizarre places, you know, toilet bowls, curtain rods. He's got a friend in, who has an estate in Florida. He hides it in his bomb shelter. And so this is Rocky's life, and he's traveling around. And, you know, the IRS is asking this Cleveland loan shark, well, wh where's all this cash coming from? And they, he said, it's from Rocky Marciano. And the IRS wants to talk to the loan shark about it. And they want Rocky to, you know, answer some questions. And Rocky's heading out to Cleveland when the loan shark is out golfing and he gets shot dead on the course because he'd been having a feud with some local mob bosses about uh, his loan sharking business. Yeah, that was, yeah, his, his financial stuff was really interesting. Yeah, he loved cash. And like, I think one of his friends, you know, like rummaged through one of his pants pockets and he found these crumpled up checks for $50,000, $100,000, not cashed. And he's like, Rocky, why don't you cash them? It's it's a hundred thousand dollars. He's like, I I don't like I don't like checks. I only I only like cash. Yeah, there was one time his nephew told me a story that Rocky goes to a dinner to give a speech, and he walks into the ballroom and he sees a heavy bag hanging from the ceiling. He says, "What's that for?" And the guy says, "Well, we thought you'd like you could hit the bag a few times for the crowd." And Rocky basically looks at the guy and cusses him out and says, "What do you think I am? A trained monkey?" And he goes, I'll tell you what, if you want them me to hit the bag, you take up a collection and like a hundred bucks a pop. And they look at him like, well, where are we going to get the money? And he looks out at this well-dressed crowd and he says, from them. And apparently they raised it and he, he hit the bag. <laughs> but it was, there was a sadness about his existence. It's like, like a well-trained you know, monkey. It's the 1960s, the world is changing. Yeah. I kind of pictured that mythical character, uh, Don Draper in the TV series Mad Men. You know, he's kind of wandering through this changing country, wondering what his place is. And, you know, he's kind of unmoored from his family. You know, he doesn't go back to Brockton much. His, his mother laments that he doesn't see his family, you know, often enough. And he still cares about them. And he feels almost like a hamster on a, on a wheel that he has to keep doing this, you know, this thing so he can bring in money to support the family and fly him to Florida and fly him on vacations. And, you know, he takes his uh, nieces down with his daughter to see uh, – you know, chubby checker and little Eva and, you know, to live this lifestyle. And he kind of, you know, he's kind of wistful. He looks at his married brothers and sisters and he says, you know, you, you have a good, you have a normal life and everybody doesn't call your name when you walk down the street and you know, you know where you're going to be sleeping tonight. Well, I mean, he, and he also, he dies tragically in a plane crash and the way he kept his finances, hiding cash all over the place that put his, that actually ended up putting his family in financial you know straits yeah because they, they didn't they didn't know where the money was at yeah it was terrible i mean he uh and it was this kind of cheapness that did him in because often he would get you know these airline tickets to go fly somewhere to do an appearance and he would cash in the ticket and he'd find some you know rich businessman with his own private plane to fly him for free because everybody adored the the ex-champ and so he's in chicago and he's supposed to fly home to Florida where he's living at that time to, you know, celebrate his birthday the next day. This is in uh, 1969 at the end of August. And he gets a last minute proposition from a mobster pal in Chicago. Fly out to Des Moines. My nephew has a steakhouse there. Put in an appearance and then you can go back home tomorrow. So he agrees. And he gets on a, a little Cessna airplane at Midway Airport in Chicago with the mobster's nephew and this inexperienced pilot. And they fly out toward Des Moines, and they fly into a massive uh, Midwest thunderstorm. And the pilot loses visibility, and he crashes in a cornfield outside of Des Moines. 
And uh, uh, Jim Murray from the Los Angeles Times the next day wrote, you know, stop the count, he'll get up. We're all wishing today that there was an honest referee in a cornfield in Iowa. But he dies, and now his family doesn't know where his money is. You know, his daughter later talked about how they hired detectives and they searched for it. They went to some of his friends where he they believed he had stashed cash, and suddenly the friends didn't know nothing. And so they struggled. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I love reading biographies of boxers because their stories are both like inspiring, right? Like the discipline that Rocky showed during his career, his dedication, his determination, his grit, but they're also tragic. And I don't know, I don't know why that combination of inspiring and tragic is appealing to me. And maybe it's just, it makes for a good story, right? I'm curious. Definitely makes for a good story. Yeah. I'm curious as you, as you researched and wrote about Rocky Marciano, like what life lessons did you take from him? Both like, you know, positive ones, like I want to be like that. And also like sort of as a warning, like don't, don't emulate that. Well, I mean, Rocky was true to himself until he wasn't. And those are both positive and negative life lessons, you know, be true to yourself and don't lose who you are. And, you know, for most of his remarkable career, he never lost sight of who he was and he never lost sight of his goal. And he, put all distractions and obstacles aside in his pursuit of perfection. But he lived, as my subtitle of the book says, in a crooked world. And that tension was what really drew me to this story and really transcends boxing. It's, you know, surviving in a world that's changing, where there's all kinds of hidden intrigue and corruption, and you have to make sacrifices to to get where you want to go and try to preserve your humanity in the process. And the fact that Rocky kind of walked this tightrope was what really drew me to his story. In some ways, he came out triumphant. And in other ways, of course, you know, his, his life had a tragic ending. Well, Mike, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book? Well, it's available online, and it stores everywhere. It's called Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World. And the publisher is Henry Holt. Well, Mike Stan, thanks so much for coming on. This has been, uh, been a great conversation. Well, thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. My guest today is Mike Stanton. He's the author of the book Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. If you'd like to find out more notes and delve deeper into this topic, go to our show notes at aom.is slash marciano. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, got something out of it, I appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.